Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website, womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 33,057 people from 160 countries and is supported by 463 organisations from all over the world. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts engaged in defending women's rights. Today, we have Sheila Jeffries from the UK talking about the rise of kink, which is uh, based on a section, a chapter of her new book, Penile Imperialism. Then we will hear from Anna from Radfem Berlin in Germany, who will do a report about the international feminist resistance organised by Radfem Berlin. And then Feminiza from Brazil, uh, thinking about the question or talking on the question, how far can trans activists go to chase women? Jeffries um, writes in the area of sexual politics, international gender politics and lesbian and gay politics. She's written 12 books on the history of politics and sexuality. Originally from the UK, Sheila moved to Melbourne in 1992 to take up a position at the University of Melbourne. She retired back to the UK in 2015 and since then has been actively involved in feminist and lesbian feminist politics, particularly around the issue of sexual violence. Um, and recently has is a director and a, a founder of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights and a co-author of that declaration, which challenges uh, the threats posed by gender identity ideology to women's rights. Um, Sheila Jeffrey's most recent book, Penile Imperialism, is published by Spinifex Press. Thank you so much, Sheila, and over to you. The Rise of Kink normalizing sexual violence and in the book two of the chapters are concerned with transvestism the fetish behavior in which men adopt what they see as women's clothing behavior and body parts for the purposes of masochistic sexual satisfaction so i think it's reasonable to say that transvestism is a variety of sadomasochist behavior though it's not the form of sadomasochist behavior that i will be talking about today in the book, I try to embed transvestism into a historical understanding of how a variety of what were once called men's sexual perversions and are now more commonly called paraphilias or kink were normalized and brought out into public space in the period after the so-called sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. This chapter I'm talking about today is preceded, preceded by one on paedophilia. It, also, it contains a consideration of nappy fetishism, which I've talked to you all about before, so I'm not going to deal with that today. Now, the predilection for sexual practice in which one person inflicts physical or psychological violence on another was, before the sexual revolution, routinely regarded by the sexological profession as a paraphilia, a mental health problem. From the 1970s onwards, a campaign which originated in San Francisco 
the city at the heart of gay liberation, sought to normalize sexual violence under the name sadomasochism as an important component of what I call the male sex right in the book. It's now generally included under the umbrella term BDSM, bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism, or simply kink. The campaign took a similar form to those which were carried out on behalf of other uh, paraphilias, such as transvestism, pedophilia, nappy fetishism, and so on. The proponents, who were mostly male, sought to promote and normalize their practice through support groups, conventions, fairs, public display. They sought as a most important facet of their campaign to change the psychiatric diagnosis of their practice so that it was seen as an ordinary form of sex rather than connected in any way with mental illness. This they achieved, as we shall see. They moved on to campaigning to change the law so that their practice could not be seen as criminal and to prevent discrimination over matters such as child custody. And in this latter respect, they've not yet been completely successful. The normalization of sadomasochism has a very harmful impact on women's health, safety and rights, because in heterosexual relationships, the victims of the practice are overwhelmingly women and they experience violence and control. It affects women's legal rights to be free from sexual violence because the campaign to change the law to recognize the possibility of consent to very considerable harm threatens women's right to the law's protection against violence. It's also a very serious problem because it has considerable effects upon women's experience of sex as the practices of anal sex, strangulation, and many other practices of violence have become common elements of everyday sex. It is not, as practitioners commonly argue, a matter of privacy and personal life with no political significance. It is very political indeed, being the enacting in brutally clear forms, the power relations of male domination for sexual excitement. Now, historically, if we look back, we can see that BDSM has not always been the respectable practice that it is today. It has a history, and I'll say a bit about the history here. Back in the 1980s, radical and revolutionary feminists in the UK were writing about and campaigning for a sexuality of equality. We understood that men's sexual violence against women could not be brought to an end, whilst women's subordination was seen as sexy, and whilst eroticized inequality was the main form of sexual activity and pleasure under male domination. We said that there had to be a sexuality of equality if women were to be free. So when what was called lesbian sadomasochism was introduced to the UK from California around 1980 and SM Dykes as they called themselves, began to campaign for the normalization of their practice, we set up in London a group called Lesbians Against Sadomasochism and we opposed them. We lost. From then on, sadomasochism became triumphant and the ideas and practices were disseminated into heterosexual culture. 
so that today health magazines give advice to men on how to strangle women safely. That's where we are today. Now, often the first thing that proponents of sadomasochism will say in their defense is that sadomasochism is nothing to do with feminism or politics because women do it too. In fact, sadomasochism is the only paraphilia in which women are involved in any serious way. Women's sexuality though, is socially constructed from a position of, of subordination and not domination. So women's involvement in any of the practices that are overwhelmingly promoted and engaged in by men is likely to represent the considerable differences that inevitably derive from women's subordinate status. The practice of sadomasochism is not as it is generally made out to be, simply an issue of the sexual freedom of equal adults, but consists of the acting out of the sexual dynamics of male domination. Men dominating, being violent towards and humiliating women is overwhelmingly the main way in which it takes place. A minority of, of men desire to play submissive roles but they cannot usually coax or force their female partners to play the role of dominance. So they repair to prostituted women who work as dominatrixes. Being submissive is dangerous for women as it can involve serious injury or even death. But when men play at this role with prostituted women, they're in little danger because they are, they are paying and they're in charge. Research on the role of women in BDSM, and there really isn't very much, found that men are generally the initiators of the practice and that women will usually engage only to please a partner. Women involved in the SM culture overwhelmingly prefer to engage in a submissive role. Homosexual men follow the pattern of women involved in the practice in preferring submissive roles. Now, the, to look at the history for a moment, the campaign to normalize sadomasochism began in the city, which was at the heart of gay male culture in the US, San Francisco. The promotion of sadomasochism was a prime feature of the sexual liberation of gay men that took place in the 1970s. San Francisco gained a reputation as a center for leather bars, and sadomasochist sex clubs for gay men, which had rooms for private sex. When many of these facilities began to close under the pressure of the HIV epidemic in the early 80s, some activists decided to stage the Folsom Street Festival, at which half-naked men would be tied to posts and flogged on the public street, and stalls sold fetish equipment. More than 400,000 people attend this celebration of violent sex yearly, and the profits go into the local gay sex industry. Some lesbians in San Francisco began to take part in local sadomasochist and leather groups, and the campaigning organization SAMWA was founded in the city in 1979 to promote the practice as healthy, positive, and feminist. Their publications and ideas led to the setting up of SM Dyke groups in other countries. The promotion of sadomasochism was always political and aimed at normalizing the practice and spreading its ideas. Gay and lesbian sadomasochists 
wore their regalia of black leather, straps, chaps, often including Nazi accoutrements such as swastikas and SS caps, in public and in the London lesbian and feminist community to meetings and places of entertainment, to parades and at fairs and festivals. There was nothing private about the practice. It was out and unfortunately proud. As the practitioners sought to promote sadomasochism in feminist and lesbian communities, newsletters and events in the 1980s, a furious opposition was created from feminists involved in campaigns against male violence and pornography, who aimed to create a sexuality of equality to further women's liberation, not a formalized eroticizing of women's subordination. In the US and the UK throughout the 1980s, feminist opposition was fierce through publications, meetings, conferences. The ideological struggle between the lesbians who sought to normalize sadomasochism and the feminists who fought this was called by commentators, the feminist sex wars. The feminist opposition gained some considerable traction, but by the end of the decade, the feminist defense of an equal sexuality was trounced, mainly because of the enthusiasm of gay male and left media for sadomasochism. The forces in defense of the dominant submissive sexuality of male domination were too strong. The main campaigning organization now for sadomasochism is the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom in the US which was formed in 1997. And it is powered by various aspects of the sex industry. It's a coalition of almost 100 groups, which include a broad range of sex industry companies. Its goal is to fight for sexual freedom and privacy rights for all adults who engage in what they call safe, sane and consensual behavior. The campaigners were invited by the American Psychological Association which publishes the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM, to give evidence as to why there should be a change in classification of this form of sexual violence. In the 2013 DSM-5, sexual sadism disorder remained, i.e. causing pain, humiliation, fear, or some form of physical or mental harm to another person to achieve sexual gratification without the consent of the victim. But what was seen as consensual sadomasochism was removed from the DSM. The transformation in the way sadomasochism is understood as a result of the normalization campaign was extraordinary. It was transformed from a risky form of sexually violent behavior to its opposite, that is therapy. This is an example of what the US radical feminist philosopher Mary Daly called patriarchal reversal. Daly saw patriarchal ideology as based upon a reversal, which is a form of doublethink in which the victims are, for instance, blamed for the behavior of the perpetrators, or in this case, simply upturning a practice of male violence and giving it an opposite and positive interpretation. The campaign also included attempts to liberalize law and policy on sadomasochism, which have been less successful as we shall see. I now want to look at the idea of consent in sadomasochism. 
The normalization of sadomasochism required that the practice be seen as consensual. And I say a great deal more in my book earlier about the nonsense of consent, um, which is, of course, a way of gaining access to the bodies of women by men in a relationship of power. I mean, you don't really have men don't have to consent to sexual practices that women wish to do upon them. And of course, the relations between men and women are unequal. But I don't want to go into that sort of back story of consent here. Um, the social and legal acceptability of sadomasochism depends on the notion of consent, because that is all that can distinguish it from other forms of violence. There is therefore a great deal of discussion within the BDSM community, as well as among ethicists and sexologists about the limits of consent. None of the discussion acknowledges that there is a power dynamic of male domination and women's subordination already at work in heterosexual relationships before it is added to by sadomasochism. A complete equality of women and men is assumed in the discussions on consent. And of course, women are nowhere near being in a situation of equality. The concept of consent is prominently and continuously spruiked as the magic ingredient of the practice. As one researcher puts it in her study of how consent works in sadomasochism, or rather in BDSM practice, she says, consent is the sine qua non of BDSM practice. Along with trust and risk, consent forms part of a triptych which marks BDSM practice as an expression of desire and distinguishes it from criminal acts. The main problem, of course, with consent in relation to sadomasochism is that the violation of consent can be precisely what makes the practice exciting in the first place. For instance, a so-called sex coach interviewed by the BBC explained it this way. For some people saying no, but not being listened to may be part of the sexual practice. But this was okay because you've negotiated this ahead of time. So the dominant knows that's part of your cathartic pleasure. That is not having consent. The study of SM uh, consent explains that the very purpose of BDSM practice can be for the sadist to take the masochist as far as they said they want to go and a little bit further. So that consent becomes an absolute nonsense when violating it is what the excitement is about. Despite these difficulties, even in situations that include death, some BDSM activists will argue that consent should be seen as a defense. One researcher discusses the ethical dilemma created by someone who seeks out their own death. In an article titled, On the Limits of Sexual Ethics, the phenomenology of auto-assassinophilia, auto-assassinophilia. The dilemma she discusses is whether the mantra of consent covers this issue. And the main case she discusses is that of Sharon Lopatka, who initiated her own murder on an internet website dedicated to those expressing fantasies of being killed and those interested in doing the killing. Lopatka met a man online who murdered her during sexual activity. He was in fact convicted and imprisoned. 
as the Downing puts it, this demonstrates that the phenomenon of being murdered for pleasure problematizes commonplace assumptions about the legitimacy to consent. The dilemma as to the extent of his, his culpability, however, split the BDSM community between those who considered that consent trumped everything and those who believed that there should be limits. Now, the uh, advocates of BDSM use another way to try and massage their rep the reputation of their practice, which is the argument that it can be made safe. And they put a great deal of energy into creating safety codes, informational materials, and guides to different practices. It is, of course, hard to make physical assault safe, especially when the point of the practice is to be dangerous. Many of the practices can cause very serious problems to health, and some like breath play or strangulation kill. There are instructions on one advice site about how to do breath play and anal play, how to use handcuffs and how to do bondage. Apparently, for instance, bondage uh, bandage scissors are useful if someone needs to be cut loose in a hurry. So there are things you need to have around when you do this practice. There's advice on which bits of the body can be safely attacked and when paddling or spanking, the perpetrators are advised to be careful where you hit. Breasts are okay, but not kidneys, lower back and neck. It advises not to hit people in the face or neck with objects and not to target joints, which are surprisingly fragile. Of course, the practices cannot be made safe when they consist of creating injuries. But the positive coverage of BDSM in women's magazines and on health and psychology websites suggests that they can be not only safe, but even the safest form of sex to be involved in. An article in Women's Health magazine offering a guide to BDSM entitles A Beginner's Guide with Tips by a Sex Therapist is subtitled, who, by the way, says it's the safest kind of sex you can have, right? So creating deliberate injury is the safest kind of sex you can have, says Women's Health magazine. Now, the severity of the injuries that are inflicted can make it hard for the practitioners to get medical care when they need it. And there's a fascinating article in the Journal of Sexual Medicine discussing the healthcare needs of BDSM practitioners in San Francisco. Many or uh, 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 most of those in this article are lesbians. And the article gives a lot of information about what they're doing. The participants in the study engaged in practices that meant they sometimes needed to go to doctors to deal with the injuries they received, such as kink practices that had the potential to lead to physical injury, most commonly bruising or open wounds from practices such as whipping, flogging or sex toy use, etc. The practitioners also risk being infected with diseases such as HIV and hepatitis B and C, because of the exchange of body fluids. Examples that participants gave of the injuries that caused them to seek medical help or advice give a useful picture of the activities that were routinely part of their practice. 
One 53-year-old woman said a possible injury that she might need help with was a torn rotator cuff that's in the shoulder from too much flogging. And other problems were extensive bruising. A pregnant woman wanted to know whether she could carry on being flogged and how hard and where on the body. Syndromasochist lifestyles could create problems for doctors because women may not be able to make medical decisions because they had husbands who were their masters in the speak of uh, sadomasochism and had complete control of their lives. So that was a problem that was being discussed in this article for doctors. The problem can experience, the women can experience extreme forms of what now tends to be called social control. So I'll go on to say a little more about social control. The use of social control is just one way in which BDSM follows the pattern of other forms of violence against women. This a practice of uh, coercive or controlling behavior is increasingly recognized by legislatures and as an important aspect of men's violence. When not justified by consent, this is now commonly seen as a serious form of male violence, even in the absence of physical assault. Coercive and controlling behavior is an integral part of the practice of BDSM. Humiliation, for instance, is de rigueur. It is manifest in the long-term abusive relationships that exist in BDSM communities, which have various descriptors such as master slaves or D stroke S, meaning dominant submissive. In these relationships, the subordinates have many, if not most of their freedoms removed and their fi finances, movements and decisions fall under the control of their master. Coercive and controlling behavior is understood legally to make it hard for the victim of abuse to assert themselves and to leave because of ongoing psychological control. I just want to say something about children in the homes of sadomasochists. One reason that sadomasochist practitioners are keen to make their practice look respectable is to persuade the courts that there should be no barrier to gaining child custody. The director of the um, National Council for Sexual Freedom explains that the parents may be committed members of a sadomasochist community and forced to hide their practice and refrain, refrain from accessing sex education or interacting with others who are kinky because of the risk of losing custody of their children. The kinky adults, of course, may practice whipping, beating, cutting, or bondage of women and coercive control in which their male partners must be addressed as master. And all of these practices, you might think, could train children to think that violence against the control of women are ordinary parts of life. Um, Lynn Hahn has researched the effects on children living with violent fathers and points out there's overwhelming evidence that the children are distressed. Now, some children are not only forced to witness their fathers being violent, but may be required to be violent themselves towards their own mothers. In recent years, there have been a number of news reports that suggest the ill effects suffered by children who grow up with sadomasochism. One is the case of Barbie Kardashian. Kardashian is a young man from Ireland who was, uh, quote, born into a household of extreme depravity and domestic violence. 
with, with parents who engaged in a sadomasochist relationship in he, which he was directed as a child to attack his mother. He's referred to in the media as she because he describes himself as transgender. He grew up with a desire to kill women and attempted to kill his female social worker while traveling in a car with her, but she managed to survive. He repeatedly told the woman, I'm going to kill you, whilst trying to gouge out her eyes. Um, he wrapped himself around the, her body, tore clumps of her hair out, bit her and clawed at her face, tearing her eyelids. He was arrested in September 2020 at the age of 19 for threatening to kill two people, one of whom was his mother, and sent to a women's prison because of his claims to be transgender, despite a well-known and often stated desire to rape, torture, abuse, and kill women. So it does seem possible that one of the effects of growing up in a sadomasochist household might be that a child develops quite severe paraphilias of their own. Another issue which threatens the respectability of sadomasochism is the connection between women's involvement in the practice and their experience of previous sexual victimization. There's a considerable body of literature, of course, on the way in which women's experience of childhood sexual violence from men can make them predisposed to risky sexual behavior, including sadomasochism. But the implication that childhood sexual violence could create a vulnerability to participating in, in sadomasochism infuriates the proponents of the practice. Rather than predisposing victims to engage in sadomasochism, they say, sadomasochism offers an important salve, a way of healing from the trauma they have suffered. A piece in the online magazine Swaddle, for instance, explains that kink is innate, not acquired, and so it cannot be connected with abuse at all. In fact, the piece tells us BDSM can be a form of therapy for those traumatized by past abuse. They can bring instance, engage in trauma play where they play with their trauma or abuse. It's also argued by some practitioners that acting out racist violence and abuse is healing for black people. A black woman speaker at the Out-Sex New York conference in 2018, for instance, explained how race play works. She says it heals people from the traumatic racism they have experienced and consists of the reenactment and staging of oppressive racist relations in a sexual contact, context. And it's the most taboo of all taboos, the edgy of edge play, and incorporates settings, roles, races, slurs, and practices intertwining race, sex, and sexuality. Uh, for instance, it can be based on uh, World War II atrocities, Holocaust victims and Nazis, um, and so on. Now, I remember when I used to give talks against sadomasochism back in the 1980s, sometimes lesbians would tell me that sadomasochism was good for them because it allowed them to heal from their sexual abuse in childhood. I always used to reply that repetition, however, is not the same as healing. It, it just recycles the abuse. Now, one of the things that the PDSM proponents dearly want is to have um, the right to consent to extreme practices of sadomasochism to be recognized in law so that their practice cannot be um, seen as criminal. Um, and there's a, a, a great deal more that I can say about this, but I think I'm not quite going to have time to do that. But let it be said that a few years back, um, 
20 years or so back, in fact, uh, there was an attempt to get consent to the practices of sadomasochism put into law. It was going through pretty much. It was recommended. Um, then the feminists found out about it and feminists involved in fighting male violence set up a huge campaign saying it would in, be enormously dangerous to women if consent to very violent, very dangerous practices was in the law because the men would say that the women protect, uh, uh, consented and it would be impossible to um, to prosecute the men successfully. So in that sense, if in no other, uh, sadomasochist demands, um, the demands of their activism are very, very dangerous to women's interests indeed. Now the, the most dangerous form of sadomasochist practice for women's lives is breath play or strangulation. It's called breath play. And out of it comes um, what is com uh, a defense that is commonly used by men when they actually murder women by strangulation. And they call it the sex game gone wrong. Uh, breath play can include asphyxiation or suffocation, using a hood or other object, as well as choking and strangulation. And it's accepted as uh, just an adventurous form of sex. And this is demonstrated by the huge number of articles on how to do it in women's mag magazines. We could not have imagined this back in the 1970s when a woman's right to a self-defined sexuality was seen as one of the demands of the women's liberation movement in Britain. We never could have imagined that that could include strangulation or the risk of death, and of course it cannot. So we have come a long way. There's an article in Women's Health about the practice, and it explains that less dangerous forms of BDSM may lose their appeal, so that players can ratchet up their repertoire with choking. And it says, if blindfolds and role play have veered into vanilla territory for you and your partner, there are still plenty of sex moves that are considered extra freaky, like choking. Sure, it sounds intense, but experimenting with breath control or scarfing, using a scarf to constrict breathing, can be an exhilarating experience for some people. The article's called Choking as a sex move, is it for you? And it says that many readers love it. And it says, having a man's hands round your neck plays into the fantasy of being taken, also known as ravishment. You feel you have an erotic power over him and your dopamine receptors are firing on all cylinders. In fact, of course, a woman who is being strangled has very little power indeed. When fatalities occur, as they increasingly do in this practice, the sex game gone wrong defense is utilized. Now, it's not possible today to describe in any detail the many other emerging forms of men's fetishism that are normalized in the present, but there are many others which have harmful effects upon women and children, many of which are related to transvestism, which I examine in, in the, the two chapters after this one in the book. And of course, there's many that are not included in the book because I simply didn't have space. Okay, so um, that's it for today, folks. Folks, I, I hope you will not be too depressed by this and will still be interested in reading the book at some time.
Some of the things I talk about in the book is the way that as feminists, as women, we're supposed to see all the different forms of male violence as somehow separate. What's happening in a woman's bedroom where she can't say no to a practice that makes her feel humiliated is seen as uh, quite different from a man dressed up as a woman somewhere or whatever. And all the different practices seems different. Sexual harassment is seen as different from other practices of violence and so on. And I explain that the feminist message has always been that we need to connect everything. And so what I try to do the book is put all of those things together so that women can't just think, you know, mine must be my fault. You know, I, I did this or I did that or I did something else, because actually all of the practices that are going on that are distressing them are taking many forms and they need to be understood in concert, I think, so that women can understand the politics of their experience and so that we can fight those policies, which you, it, basically we have to demand changes to male sexuality. We need sex education in schools, which actually tells boys they can't be masculine. There is no such thing as masculinity, makes them gentle, pleasant and OK to be in a room with and totally transforms what we're expecting of boys and men. For instance, I mean, that's just one example, but we have to transform. We have to get rid of pornography, get rid of the, the institution of prostitution. All of those things that construct aggressive male sexuality have to go. The whole thing has to be changed so that any woman can feel safe walking down the street safe even thinking of entering a, a relationship with men, I think don't do it. But you know, okay. even if they do, and for young girls in particular, they need to be safe. So for any of that to happen, we have to bring down the whole structure, the whole structure. And so I try to give just a small snapshot really of that structure. I mean, there's quite a bit in the book, but there's so much I never got around to, for instance. Okay, we're gonna to go to Anna from Radfem Berlin now. So Anna is the founder of Radfem Berlin, a German activist group. She's a researcher and writer, and she is going to do a report about the international feminist resistance organized by Radfem Berlin, um, particularly around the big demonstration and event in September, but whatever else. Thank you so much, Anna, and over to you. This is uh, the photo of the women arriving to the protest. We make the protest in front of the um, Chancellor office in Berlin. And so basically I, I will uh, explain roughly the situation with the laws here in Germany and how the gender uh, agenda agenda is pushing in Germany. So this is the so the current, we have currently a legislation that allow men to uh, be named women as a, a legal fiction, which is the TSG or the transsexual law. They want to eradicate that and install the self-ID law. And uh, on the past 30th, uh, 30th of June, 2022, they kind of presented this project. They said that um, by the end of September, they would start already the process to have the law implemented in Germany or enacted in Germany uh, or passed <laughs> by the end of the year. So these are some of the points. Um, they said that they will abolish the transsexual law and replace it um, according to, a regular, uh, regulate, to the current regulation. It requires a court procedure in which two expert opinions must be obtained to have this legal fiction into the documents. Um, and they claim that these procedures are very long and they cost a lot of money. So this is why they want to uh, take this law down and, in, and put the self ID. Um, the change of the gender 
will um, basically affect transgender, uh, non-binary, intersex. So basically they are hiding, they're uh, profiting from the intersex people that here in Germany, there is another law for intersex people. So they use them to hide all, all of this ag agenda um, and to push for the self-ID into the laws. So um, this is, and then, then the next points also is that from the age of, of 14, uh, the minors can make the declaration themselves to say that uh, they feel like the other sex and with the consent, they need of course the consent of the legal guardian, but in case they don't have that, they can go to the court and get it through the court. Mm, and they can change the gender legally uh, once a year, if this law is enacted in Germany. The law will also contain a prohibit a prohibition, a prohibition, prohibition uh, on disclosure subject to a fine. So it means that if we don't say that a man is a woman, then we get um, a penalty basically. So, and we um, basically, we based our protest and the location of a protest on what happened before the elections last year where Olaf Scholz, which is the current uh, German uh, counselor, went on television to promise this uh, trans activist that uh, if he gets into power, so his party gets into power, that they are going to pass the gender ID law. This happened on television and this is the trans activist that attacked Waffen Berlin last year for weeks. And they really wanted to take all of our, our accounts down. They didn't want to let us say what we had to say. He um, attacked me personally also. He searched for photos of me online, very old photos of me. <laughs> and he started saying how ugly I was. He started attacking also on my nationality. And he claimed that Latinas are just a big ass. So he had very um, xenophobe comments about me. And for us, as this man, uh, so this trans activist is uh, very linked to the media here in Germany, or it seems like this, that all the TV, uh, TV uh, online um, Instagram accounts were defending him. So he seems to be someone kind of connected to this, to the media. And to us, it's, like, to me especially, it's a little bit shocking because that the current German Chancellor is connected to this kind of, I don't know, xenophobe um, comments or this kind of um, trans activists having this kind of behavior. It's, it, gives a, um, it gives a feeling that what the German government now is aligned with such xenophobe comments or like normally we get these kind of comments from the right wing or not from the socialist, like where uh, Olaf belongs. Olaf is from the SPD, so he's from the socialist parties. So for us, it's a little bit shocking to hear such things. So this is why we planned the protest in front of his office. And even before we published all the details about our protest, we already got a counter action, a counter rally planned. And this time they were completely organized. 
the prostitution lobby and the trans lobby um, were connected to all the <laughs> all the media, all the Instagram um, influencers. So all of them were posting, calling people to act against our demonstration. So here is our um, official flyer. So we were calling women to come. And then they were calling to counteract our um, action. They were really searching the Berlin police page to know exactly the details. So this is where the office of the counselor was, this is where we were, this is where they registered the first counteraction against us, but then they moved here closer. So they really wanted to scare us out. They uh, made campaigns everywhere. They even started collecting money because they had to pay for the people that came to their demo to, to speak. So <laughs> it was, um, they were promising that 500 trans activists would come. So many of the women were already, of course, asking us uh, if this would be safe, if this would be canceled. And they were kind of getting a little bit scared about it. And this is exactly what this, so this is roughly what started happening like uh, two or three days before the, the demonstration happened. We were in this very famous uh, magazine from Germany, among others. Uh, calling trans activists to come to um, disturb our like our demonstration. Behind this, it was the trans activist um, movement, but also like the prostitution lobby of Germany. This is the second time they act against us. And this is where they say that uh, this time uh, Sheila Jeffries was coming, which is a TERF from the UK. <laughs> so they knew that Sheila was coming. And even though we had all of this pressure, we had all of these uh, threats and everything they wanted, they threatened us also to be dangerous together. So they wanted really, they wanted us to cancel everything, to get so scared that we cancel everything. So um, we published uh, very fast that uh, it's illegal in Germany to uh, disturb, like not to allow a protest to happen. So if that would be the case that we were ready to have legal actions against that because we, we, will have, we, we would have our protest anyways. So I think when we published this, that we are not going to cancel anything, I think this uh, was taken by the trans activists like, okay, <laughs> so this is going to happen anyways. And might have led to some not to come to, to the demonstration because of course, when we are going into legal terms, they might also feel not so safe. But in Germany, it's like this, you, you cannot prevent someone from protesting. So and this is how we arrived to the protest. So this is Sheila from behind, <laughs> this is Esperanza. So everything was very calm. They, the Berliner police kept them very far from us. So we were able to have our protests. And of course we had a program. We, these, are, these were our demands. We also published them together with a security protocol to make sure that the women could have some advice on what to do in case something happened. But actually the police was acted super well, like, uh, most, like the last time also. And this is where the, so the speakers that we had, 
Um, we had Sheila, of course, Dr. Ingeborg Klaus, that she's a, um, an activist for the Nordic model. We had all kinds of um, activists and feminists talking there. Then, uh, of course, we also had Liane from Liane and Sarah from Get the Loud. They also gave uh, very nice speeches, very nice, so super nice. This is uh, Ingeborg Klaus. So, this is uh, some photos of the event when it started. So we had uh, women from all parts of Germany, all kinds of uh, ages and backgrounds and cultural uh, backgrounds. This was, we always make, so every time we have so many women coming because this time we counted 164-ish, <laughs> more or less, because then in the middle it rained. So whenever we have so many women coming to our events, it's a very big pleasure for us because we are separatists and we are always for lesbian resistance. So we don't allow men. So, and this also brings a backlash not to uh, accept men, but it also brings women uh, writing to us saying how important this is, like we don't accept men in our demonstrations. There we also had the support from Francis from the WDI Germany, Laura Sabatiaga from WDI Peru. And here we have to make a special thanks to Lara because she is helping Radfem Berlin since very long. And uh, we, we are very thankful to her. She did great job for us. And this was the counteraction of the trans activists. So basically they received us uh, on the train station with a vandalized ad display <laughs> and then this was them basically they were not 500 they were hardly 100 110 something like this and um, there was then a man that uh, he he says that he's a woman that went to their side to say how uh, dangerous the self-id laws are and they even kick this person they didn't want to hear about him and this is what you see on the second photo and then they said that uh, feminists and these kind of men that are against uh, the self-ID, even though they, they call themselves women, uh, are going against uh, trans children. So basically they are kind of instrumentalizing children to uh, put us in a very bad light. You know? Like we are against the decision of children of ideas like this. And this is not the case. So this is one of the photo when we were in the middle of the demonstration. And yes, basically at the end of the rally, the, the, the big danger, the big danger that we had were three girls that came um, to throw eggs at us, but we were far from there, so nothing happened to us. And normally uh, the, when we register a protest, we have at until certain time. And this time we couldn't really uh, continue further than this because the police didn't allow it. So there were two speeches that could not happen, but we had uh, the video of one of them. So we included this speech into our documentation. And on the next day, we had the presentation of the book of uh, Sheila. And this was also like uh, very important because 
um, the women were already very, um, like, the feeling was great because the previous day we, after the demonstration, we went all together to eat, to drink something. Then we went to a bar. So we were kind of interacting and connecting with each other. And on the next day we had another talk um, from Sheila, where she talked about the content of the book. We selected um, many essays from Sheila and we translated them into German. And they were around 30 women in the 30, 35 women in the, in the presentation of the book. We had to organize this also not publicly. So we had to create like some sort of net under, <laughs> under, underwear. So, uh, yeah, like a secret net uh, um, between feminists that one feminist tell the other feminists and so on, not to get cancelled because in Berlin it's very hard. Uh, as soon as they know something, they would automatically cancel the event and we couldn't afford that. Um, after the presentation of the book, uh, there was a nice uh, discussion and it was a great moment for all women. Uh, to get closer to understand political lesbianism and why lesbians uh, need to come out to see women and to understand that radical feminists know that heterosexuality is a system to oppress females into male subordination. So this is... Because as soon as you get the men out, you see women. <laughs> So, from that time onwards, revolutionary feminism was a distinctive strand of feminism in the UK. Revolutionary feminists were mostly lesbians. I, in fact, I think possibly they were all lesbians. It was really a kind of lesbian faction. And we analysed heterosexuality and we promoted lesbian feminism and we promoted lesbianism. You know, we also wrote the political lesbian paper out of that faction. And we concentrated on analysing male sexuality and our activism was about fighting violence against women, pornography, prostitution, sadomasochism. So this was uh, where the book presentation happened. Uh, it was super nice. We had the chance to um, discuss with Sheila, ask questions. It was super nice. And after this, we went to eat something again and to drink something together. We had a kind of lesbian um, activist weekend with Get the Loud, Liane and Sara as well. It was very nice. It was super nice. And of course, we also got the support from For Women Scotland. They made like a parallel action to support ours online. So they went to the German embassy in Scotland to, they printed uh, uh, banners in German even to support our action. So this was great. And then um, for, to our surprise, nine days after the protest, um, the Ger German government publishes that they are going to kind of uh, take longer to start the process of um, passing the self-ID law. So um, they are not going to do it now. At the, so they are not going to do it now. They said that at least they need until the end of the year. And the, let's say the, the, the weird part is that they, they had such big fixed plans to enact this law and to start the process of the self-ID that now suddenly they are saying that they will take longer. So it's a way to postpone it. And uh, they also didn't give any reason why. So this is also very strange. 
but this is happening. We are feminists in Germany. We are winning some time, let's say. So we are going to keep going. And this is why we are organizing here from Rathen Berlin and in Berlin. We are going to go ahead and have monthly protests every month. So the idea is to gather together, inform the people. We're going to go to the Brandenburg tour next October 29th. And the idea is that we are not going to stop until the German government gives up this um, misogynist and lesbophobe uh, laws. So this is what we're doing next. So everybody that wants to come and support, please contact us. We are going to do this monthly. And we also encourage other women in Germany, if they want to do this in different cities, to go one day a month to protest against this until the government stop erasing women and girls here in Germany. And you can read our manifest online where with all our um, demands. We're now going to move on to our third speaker, and that is, uh, she is Feminiza from Brazil. She's a feminist activist dedicated to domestic and sexual violence survivors issues, and is going to speak on how far can trans activists go to chase women. So thanks so much for coming, Feminiza, and over to you. First, I present myself. I'm Isa. I work with survivors of sexual and domestic violence for the last seven years, or yeah, I think it's seven right now. And mostly um, I talk about domestic violence online. That's what I do. I just started and I had no intentions of becoming a feminist icon or figure at any point in my life. It just happened because I was talking about something that no one was talking about. And I started talking about psychological violence against women in domestic violence context. And it, it just became huge. And since 2021, we have a new crime in Brazil, in Brazilian law, in our penal code, is the psychological violence against women, exclusively. And yeah, that's pretty much what I do and what I talk about. Uh, I'm here to talk about my story uh, with this guy who, for some reason, believes he's a woman. Uh, he's a politician from Brazil, and he was the most voted woman in the country in 2020. Uh, well, his name is Felipe, aka Erika Hilton, and I'm going to talk about my case because now apparently I'm a criminal or something. Uh, at least that's what the São Paulo state thinks about me. So in 2020, this person was elected as the most voted woman uh, for São Paulo's chamber and also the most voted woman in the country. And actually also the only woman to make the list of the top 10 most voted candidates uh, in the country in history. So he was the only woman in this list ever in the country's history. It's very important for our national politics and law in Brazil because it's probably the most stupid one. And because of that, the most serious one, I never heard of any case like my case. And of course, I know that in Brazil, as a radical feminist, I'm the most known radical feminist in the country. So of course, uh, everything would come to my head and these guys hate me because people are listening to me and I'm pretty sure I make sense. So it happens a lot uh, for a long time, but this was like 
the most absurd thing. And now uh, some information for you, uh, Anna. In Brazil, everyone is allowed to change their sex on their birth certificate. And there's no criteria. And you can choose, um, yeah, you can just put that your sex is non-binary in your birth certificate. So we don't have a reliable data about feminicide or domestic violence or sexual violence anymore in the country. So yeah, for me personally, I would say this is a problem. And also in our law, and I'll talk a bit about it, the only kind of discrimination that is 100% legal in the country is misogyny. It's the only kind of discrimination that is not a crime. So things are, are wild in Brazil right now. And actually, um, what happens is that our Supreme Court equiparated transphobia to racism, which is one of the most horrible crimes we have in our penal code and in our law, of course, because of our history of slavery. But they just equiparated one thing to the other, but it wasn't uh, like the right process, I'd say. Uh, it's too complicated to explain in English, but. In our law, there's no crime if there's not a previous law who, uh, which we define it. So we don't have any laws defining transphobia. This means that transphobia is not a crime in Brazil. But I was charged with five counts of racism by Sao Paulo State for saying that the most voted woman in the country is a man. That was all I said. So uh, yeah, as I said, it's one of the most horrible crimes in our law. Uh, it has a special law, like we have our penal code and we have like a special law for racism. Again, because of our history, because we owe this to black people in the country and they just equiparated it to transphobia because they understand this is a kind of social racism. And yeah, in Brazil, pretty much everything, I mean, I think it's everywhere, but in Brazil, really, it's completely out of control. And like everything is transphobia. If I say I'm a woman, I'm being transphobic. If I say I have my period, I'm being transphobic. If I say my name is Isabel, it's probably transphobic too, because it ends with an A. I don't know, like things are, are too much right now. And yeah, so basically, the whole process of turning transphobia into a crime in the country was completely illegal and it breaks basic principles of our constitution. But people, yeah, these people from the left who are claiming to be fighting for saving democracy from Bolsonaro and stuff in the country, they apparently don't care at all. They don't care if we're breaking our own constitution. And yeah, so this person, Erika, Felipe, whatever. He started like a campaign years ago. So he would always post on Twitter and other social media that he was suing me. And also he was using uh, the fact that was actually a lie that he was suing 50 people. Uh, and he would uh, pay for the documentation of uh, yeah, vulnerable trans people with the money we would pay him because he just didn't like what we said 
I don't know who are the other 49 people in this list because the only name he mentions is my name. So I'm not actually sure there are other 49 people. And actually, he never sued me, ever. It doesn't exist. So it's been years that I'm hearing like, oh, Erika Hilton suing Feminiza, Erika Hilton suing Feminiza, and this is actually not happening. Many people believe in it. And I actually, well, I learned about these charges pressed against me uh, when a journalist from the biggest newspaper in the country came to talk to me and asked for my opinion on it. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about because I've never heard of it. The government and the state, they never gave me any documents. I have no access to this suit and these criminal charges. Uh, yeah, until now. So it was in June. It was actually, uh, that's an interesting part of the story. It was two days after my ex-boyfriend was convicted for violating the restraining order. So I was happy for 48 hours. And then it was too much for a feminist. So I think they found a way to end it. And it was one day before we have the LGBT parade in Sao Paulo uh, on, on June. And it's, a, it's huge. So it was a day before that. And of course, it was part of the campaign for this politician who was elected again this year, last month, for, yeah, for the federal chamber. Now, I'm not sure about what happened after that because I just learned from these charges in this newspaper and I never heard of it again from anyone, like an official document or officer or public ministry member. So I'm not so sure if I would guess. Uh, this is a group, right? So this person, this politician, he's part of the human rights group in the chamber. And there's this other guy, the prosecutor, he is like part of the human rights group in the public ministry. And he was the one to press these charges against me. And they work together, of course. And there's another guy, a third guy, and he's a lawyer. And he's part of the human rights group um, of the organization, like we would say is like the bar for for lawyers in Brazil. They're all worth like, they're friends, let's say they're friends, they're good friends, and they help each other a lot. What happened after that was that now, uh, yeah, this guy, this last guy, this lawyer, he's representing my ex-boyfriend on the rape suit, so, he was convicted for violating my restraining order. He ran away from Brazil. Uh, he's not in the country right now. He's actually in Indonesia because I am here and that's how crazy he is. And this guy, this LGBT specialist lawyer is on, yeah, he's working on his defense and they're all friends with Erika Hilton and also his lawyers. It's all the same group. So out of a sudden, this guy, is on my ex's defense on a case of rape. And that's how far they went. Before that, before that happened, it was in, in November, 2020. I used to be invited to TV shows, podcasts, YouTube channels, magazines, all kinds of media to talk about my work, 
my thoughts and my ideas on domestic violence, but that's my field of study and work since always. And in 24 hours, I lost 11,000 followers. It was just like, it was crazy. I couldn't leave my home for weeks. And after that, uh, then things got really wild. So now I am a proudly canceled influencer, I would say. And yeah, my, my life changed completely because of that. And I was completely deplatformed. So I'm not invited to talk about domestic or sexual violence anymore, ever. I'm not allowed in places or events. Uh, yeah, I was pretty much expelled uh, from society after that happened. And even some liberal feminists that I used to work with sometimes in domestic violence, violence issues, they actually unfollowed me and sent me messages saying, I'm sorry, I'm unfollowing you because I don't want to lose my jobs. And by jobs, they mean like campaigns, like digital campaigns and social media for brands. And they actually, when they're offline, they agree 100% with anything I would say, like everyone else. I, I never spoke to anyone who wouldn't believe or agree with my ideas on self-ID policy. So yeah, I think that's uh, pretty much what happened also. Yeah, so <laughs> after the whole situation with my ex happened, it was so weird because before that, before the situation with the politician, uh, I was believed, I was respected in feminism as an activist especially for working in domestic violence issues. And this whole thing happened and suddenly all feminists and uh, yeah, liberal and yeah, they had no basis, but they would call themselves feminists. They wouldn't believe me. They actually supported my rapist because I am transphobic. And this is happening until now. So some of them, actually witness it uh, and, and they depose like, um, I don't know how to describe it in English because the terms are different, but they were in court against me, literally lying to support him because I am transphobic. So things got completely out of control and absurd. My opinion and my guess is that the judge uh, of this case that I have no access to didn't receive the accusations because in Brazil, like the public ministry, they can like offer the charges, but then a judge has to receive them. And then I would receive documents and I would have to go to court or something. So my guess is that the judge didn't receive them and the suit actually doesn't exist. So after it went out on media and everyone was talking about it and they made like a circus around this whole situation, I never heard of the case again. And this politician never mentioned my name again. And I think it's because nothing will actually happen. But in this article on this newspaper, they said that I could get 25 years in prison. What is also a lie, like huge lie. If you would kill someone in the most horrible way, first degree, 
in Brazil, you wouldn't get 25 years in prison, but it was intentional. Uh, we have an article um, in our penal code, which would define like how much time a person could get for every crime, but they decided to completely ignore it. And so they just took like the maximum time a person could get for the crime of racism and multiplied by five. And so that was on the news that I could get 25 years in prison. That's not true, not even close to the truth. When I talk to people, even people, uh, progressists like uh, leftists from other countries, when I say that like I'm a feminist and I work with survivors and stuff, they, they want to talk with me. And then when I tell them my story and my case in Brazil, they all get a bit confused. Like, oh, I thought feminists would be together with the LGBT or XYZ. And then I start talking to them and they all get very surprised, but they all say it makes a lot of sense. So people from every country, I've talked to people from Belgium, Germany, Australia, uh, India, every corner of this world. And no one, like after they think for five minutes, no one believes her sexuality exists. And it's so easy. And I feel so comfortable to say it doesn't exist. And they yeah. just look at me and agree.